We're looking at Galatians 4. Uh, We'll be in verses 21 through 31 this morning. And as you're bringing that up, a couple of months ago, a fellow pastor whose ministry I just have a lot of respect for asked me how things were going here at Red Mountain. And uh, I told them, of course, what a lovely people you all are and uh, that Red Mountain has become a real sweet place for us to be. And then I said, and we're studying Galatians right now. And he like stopped and kind of almost stepped back a little bit. And he said, really, you're studying Galatians right now. And I said, like, it made me pause because this, this person is somebody that's been laboring in ministry for a lot of years. He's a brilliant teacher. Um, he's a wonderful friend, uh, super insightful, real clear communicator. And something about his response uh, gave me a lot of pause And I said, yeah, why? (laughs) And he just said, I've always found Galatians to be really hard. Uh, I've been intimidated by that text, and I just think that a lot of Paul's arguments are really complex. And uh, that's certainly true. But I think that what he had in mind was this text we're about to look at this morning, which is uh, where Paul begins to reference a couple of Old Testament passages in order to make his argument And I suppose there are really two reasons that I can at least think of off the top of my head about why I wanted to do Galatians with you. And I really thank you for hanging with us on this. Um, But the first is just I wanted the clearest path to talking about some of the fundamentals of the gospel with you for a little while. Just opportunities to talk about grace, uh, just how profound Christ's sacrifice on the cross is for us, and the freedom that belonging to Christ invites us into. I think Galatians really serves us well in that way. Um, But you often see in Galatians, Paul using Old Testament stories uh, to help make his point about what our life in Christ look like. And one of the important things that we need to see here uh, when he does that is he is making the point that even though some of the circumstances of our relationship with God are, uh, f- are affected by the seismic historic event of Jesus' uh, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, that God never changed. Uh, more to the point, his character never changed. His fundamental disposition toward his people has always been steady. And that's what we're talking about this morning, really, is the character of God, our Father, and how it is steady and reliable and consistent and loving toward you, his people. Let's look together. This is verses 21 through 31. Hear the word of the Lord. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law... Do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, 
Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him, who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be among us now that you would help us as we lean into this text, uh, that you would give us what we need to hear this morning. Proclaim the truth of Christ to us again, that we need to hear so badly. And I pray that you would help me as I sift through uh, this uh, undoubtedly complex text. Would you help me to be simple, clear, and helpful for these friends? And I pray that you would help me to honor you with the words that I say. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So a couple of weeks ago, I learned that I struck a nerve with many of you when I was talking about how much the pandemic uh, has affected our sense of belonging. Uh, many of you actually made comments to me, or I, I got a couple emails, just people said, hey, uh, that really resonated with me. I really feel that. Uh, and of course, uh, I do too. Obviously, I feel it too. Um, the truth is, is that as the world changes... We feel that change is hard. A change represents for us in a lot of ways a kind of pain. It's a feeling of loss, the stripping away of, of things that we structure our life around. And that, that's just really hard for us. And the truth is, if we, I think if we admit it to ourselves, we're, we're, try, we're making our way one foot in front of the other in a world that is changing rapidly. And we feel that, don't we? I mean, technologies are changing the way we relate to each other is changing. Economies are changing. Prevailing opinions in the world are changing. People are changing. I read an article the other day that said that 55% of people currently in the workforce are considering a, are anticipating a job change in the next 12 months. People are changing. And you know what that means? That means that neighborhoods are changing and relationships are changing. And, and we just feel all of that at a really deep level. So much so, I think one of the central challenges for us, just as God's people, is navigating the world that is changing around us and not losing ourselves along the way as people of faith. I think that's one of our real challenges. And one of the things I've noticed in my own heart, and I see it in, in many around me, is just simply when we're kind of when we're absorbing or enduring change at such a comprehensive scale, we look to fill our lives with things that are stable, right? I mean, that makes sense. But we look, we look to establish places of real steadiness, fill our lives with steadiness, steady rhythms, steady work, steady income, steady friends. Steadiness becomes really valuable to us. And all this is to say is that there are times when the law can feel really encouraging. It can actually feel easier 
to have the clarity that it gives us, clear guidelines to run within. Here you win and over here you lose. And, and that, that, that would be something that's kind of sturdy and reliable for us. And it can feel like when Paul's talking about courage or t- talking about freedom, that freedom can really require courage. And when we look at this text, the nature of change lies right at the heart of this letter that Paul writes to the Galatians. Because one of the things that he's being accused of is saying that he has overthrown everything they thought they knew about who God was when he talks about Jesus. And when Paul looks, you can see it in verse 21, this is just an astounding thing to say to a bunch of Judaizers, those who are profoundly familiar with the Jewish text, the Old Testament text. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, that would be the first five books of the Bible, do you not listen to the law? And he, what Paul is saying is that you have completely misunderstood the character of God that was given to us in these Old Testament scriptures. You have built a meritocracy of faith through achievement and attainment that God never created for his people. In fact, he was always, 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 always a father who made promises to his children. And if he is the father of promises, then he's also the father of hope. And if he's the father of hope, then he's also the father of endurance. And that's what we're talking about this morning, how God, our Father, is consistent with us. And he is always the one who makes promises to us, who holds us in hope, and who helps us endure. First, the Father of promises. Paul ends this text by giving us this beatific identity statement. I mean, it is incredible. It, it is incredible to just even think about the implications of, uh, of believing that this is true. He says, we are children of a promise. And if we are to believe that we are children of a promise, then we have to believe that we belong to a father of promise. So how does Paul make that case? Well, he refers back to a story in Genesis. This is that part of the text where he's talking about Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. You find this, uh, this all back in Genesis 15, 16 and going forward. But uh, they were pro- in Genesis 15, God makes promises to Abraham and Sarah. Big ones. Abraham is troubled. We've talked about this before. But Abraham is troubled, the fact that he doesn't have a male heir. And God says to him, not only will you have a male heir... But one day your descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky that you're seeing right now. That's a big promise. It's only bigger when you think about Sarah. Sarah's a woman who hasn't been able to conceive her her whole life. And now they're they're getting older. Abraham is almost 100 years old. He is promising a miraculous birth. That is a big one. And the challenge for Abraham and Sarah, it's very similar to the challenges for us, is not, did God make promises to us? It is trusting that he actually makes good on these promises. And in fact, as the story goes, we see that Abraham and Sarah get antsy. And they begin to, they conceive of a plan by which Abraham would go to one of their slaves, Hagar, 
and they would get a male uh, heir through, through that relationship. I'm trying to be, you know, careful here. <laughs> and so, and so they, and the problem was that they didn't trust, they didn't trust that God's promises were real. And so they went another route. And that's, and I, I got to say, that, that was a common, pretty common cultural practice at that time. None of their neighbors would have batted their eyes at him doing this. But it's certainly not something that God would have approved of. Yeah, I don't think you can read Genesis 2 and think God was for this. But that's what they did. That's what they did, and that's how we find Ishmael, the child of a slave, is what they're called in this text. And then what we see, as the story continues, is that God actually does keep his promises. That Sarah miraculously becomes pregnant. And that's how we meet Isaac, the child, the very first child of promise. We see there that God keeps his promises. And let me just say that again. God keeps his promises. In fact, I think if you, if you stopped and you read this Bible from cover to cover just working to make notes of all the places God makes promises to his people, you might be overwhelmed. But God is making the case through the whole story of scripture that he is a promise maker and that he is a promise keeper. And I need you to hear this, that if you belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ, he's made profound promises to you. Promises to never leave you or forsake you. Promises to secure a future for you. Promises that even one day that this world will be made new again. And it, and it won't be constantly difficult to navigate a life within it. Promises that you stand free before the throne of judgment. These are promises that our whole lives are built around in a lot of ways. And the trouble for us in a lot of ways isn't... <laughs> isn't... It, isn't um, the desires of our heart. Abraham and Sarah had wonderful desires for, for a new child. They wanted this child. And God wanted it for them too. But the challenge for them is the same as us. Do we trust that God will actually keep his promises? There's a wonderful story about, uh, it's a short one, it's about Jesus, one of Jesus' stories. You know how many times I can, uh, you know how many times I see in Jesus' stories if, uh, where he actually opposes desires within his people? I can't find one. Where he looks at the desires of people's hearts and actually says, that's your problem. You may know of one, and if you do, just come up, come up after the service and talk to me about it. But the, the, the issue for Jesus always is trust. It's always faith. There's this great story where he, it's really short and simple, but it's worth noting where he's going along the road and he comes across a blind man. And a blind man cry, the blind man cries out to him. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus asks the desire question. Actually, Jesus attends to this man's desires with great care. And of course, the blind man says, I want to see again. And what does Jesus say? He says, go on your way. Your faith has made you well. What's Jesus' concern? It's trust. And so I just need to ask you this question. 
as we navigate lives that are full of loss and difficulty, can you trust that God, even in ways seen and unseen, is always working for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose? Can you trust that? Can you trust that you're a child of promise and that you belong to a father of promise? If so, I would say you have something sturdy. I would say you have something that's really sturdy that you can build a life around. And if you can believe that God is the father of promise, then you can also believe that he's the father of hope. Because that's what promises do. They invite us to hope. And so what does Paul do at this point? Well, Paul goes on to begin quoting Isaiah 54. That's what you see in that little stanza starting in verse 27, rejoice. Now these words were first given to Jewish exiles in Babylon. This would have been about 1,200 years. See how Paul's drawing a line through scripture. This would have been about 1,200 years after Abraham and Sarah, about 600 years before Paul. And, he's, and this is God offering words of hope to, uh, to people that had very little reason for hope. In fact, these are some of the most darkest moments in Israel's history that God begins to offer them words of hope. He offers words of hope for the discouraged, and he offers words of hope for the uncertain. First, he offers words of hope for the discouraged. Now, I want to be careful here, because this, God is speaking to women in Israel who have been, as of yet, unable to have a child and that is a place of real deep discouragement. And what does he do? What does he do? He gives them words of hope. He says, rejoice, this is the promise, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. And it's profound to me that what God does is he places words of hope right into the place of some of some of the deepest discouragements they might experience. That he's offering hope for the discouraged. He also offers hope for the uncertain. That the, Listen, these Israelites thought that their national life was over. That they would never return home or have their own country again. And when they looked forward into the future, it was really hard to see any kind of future prosperity. They were living during a time of deep uncertainty. But this is a word of hope that's placed right in the heart of their uncertainty. Because he's promising a future, not just a future, but a future flourishing for their people. And so God is the one that takes, that takes our deepest discouragements and our deepest uncertainties. And he gives us words of hope embedded in promise. Now how does this work? You've got to trace all these things together. How does the story of Sarah and Hagar and Isaiah 54 and Jesus, how, are they all, how do they all come together? Let me put it this way. I heard somebody, I got this, uh, I heard somebody else put it this way. I couldn't improve it. So, so let me give this to you. But what, what Paul is doing is he is saying that this prophecy in Isaiah is, uh, it look, is looking back to Genesis 16. Where, Paul, where God is looking at two different women, one who is young and able to conceive and another who is uh, older and unable to conceive. And what he does is he chooses the older 
and barren woman to be the one through which to be the mother of his people. And then it looks then he looks forward because through her family would come another unlikely son who was born to another woman who could have no expectation of being pregnant. Not because she was barren, but because she was a virgin. And it's, through, and it's through that son that all the people of the world would be blessed one day. And it's profound to me. Listen, the amazing truth of the gospel is that it is given over to those who are discouraged. It, it is given over to those who are in pain. It is given to those who feel hurt, who feel loss, whose lives do not look like the way they imagined it. It is given over to those who feel shame about their present, uncertainty, and fear about their future. That's where the God, that is where God traces the path of the gospel through those people, leaving behind a trail of miraculous births and calling us to hope. Listen, I got to say... I got to say that God feels some kind of affection for lost people. Jesus said once, those who are well have, have no need of a physician, but I came to seek and save what was lost. I just want to ask you, do you feel lost? Are there, uh, and if that's not a comprehensive lostness, are there places in your life where you might feel lost? I mean, it can come to us in so many ways when we like, you know, look around at the people that we're around or that we belong to or the communities that we're in or the neighborhoods that we're in or whatever. And we can just wonder, what am I doing here? It can come to us internally. Like, what, what, I can't make sense of the movements of my own heart. When did I suddenly become concerned about these things? When did I become so afraid? I feel lost. The reality of change can make us feel lost. Listen, if you feel lost right now, I want you to know that when Jesus came, he had you on his mind. Because when he gave himself over to an angry crowd, to be tormented, to endure insults and mocking and and threats and beating when he gave it, he identified with us in our loneliness. And when he went before the Sanhedrin, falsely accused of things, he identified with us. He identified with us in our mistreatment, in our fears, in the accusations that we deserve. And when he went before the cross, He took the place of judgment so that we never have to. And it's in Jesus' suffering that we bear witness to his solidarity with us. It's in his death that we see his love. And it's in in his resurrection that we find our hope. Not in this life, but in the one to come. Because he comes from the father of hope. And if he comes from the father of hope, then he also comes from the father of endurance. Because listen, that's what hope does. It helps us to endure. In fact, hope holds us while we wait. Listen, Paul is going on to explain how we will endure persecution. He makes no bones about it. And in fact, there are many places in Scripture that just where God says to his people, this is something you're going to have to expect. Endurance 
in faith at times is simply going to be hard. But how does, he do, how does he do that here? In verse 29, he says, Just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh, he's talking about Ishmael, uh, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. Talking about Isaac. And the, what Paul is doing is making another reference back to the story. You'll find this particular one in Genesis 19. And it's where Isaac is weaned. And when he was being weaned, there's this reference to Ishmael standing there. He was observed mocking Isaac. But he, he was taunting and laughing at him. And Paul is saying, just as it was then, so it is now. And in the next, in the next uh, chapter, what Paul is going to say is that the flesh and the spirit are always opposed to each other. That there's always been animosity between the children of the flesh and the children of the spirit. And that is something we, we, it is a guarantee that we will have to endure that. And sometimes that might feel like open hostility to the faith. Sometimes it, it might feel like difficulty with others who also claim the faith. And sometimes it just feels like social pressure. But what does Paul do? The question is not, is it gonna, am I going to need endurance for the race of faith? But where will I get it from? And what Paul says, what Paul points to for endurance is that he simply brings it full circle and he says, remember you are still children of the promise. He says it's the promise that holds us. That as children of the promise, we inherit all the goodness that God promises to us. Let me ask you, just take some time and think about this. What threatens your endurance? What gets in the way? What makes, what, what makes it a little easier to wonder if there is another way to navigate this life that's in front of me? Sometimes it's intellectual. And I got to tell you, if you are curious and you are wondering, or maybe you've walked in faith all your life, but now you're really questioning what are the claims of the Bible, I want you to hear you're in good company here, okay? But those things can, can, uh, can sap our endurance, can't they? Sometimes uh, it's social, like in this text. What will these people think about me when I hear that I'm a Christian? Or maybe it's emotional. Like, why am I not feeling these things with more persuasion of the heart than I am right now? Or maybe it's just as simple as I'm not willing to risk my joy in order to give everything over and away for Jesus. Listen, let me tell you something. Would it be, would it be encouraging for you to hear as I wrap up that every single one of the disciples experienced that too. Every single one. And all but one of them are with Jesus right now. In fact, as the story goes, that as Jesus made his way to the cross, all the disciples fell away from him. That they were afraid of being identified with him. That they were feeling the hostility that directed at Jesus and were afraid of that being directed at themselves. And so in this moment of deepest need, they abandoned him. But when Jesus dies and resurrects, what we see is that Jesus never abandoned them. When he, there's a story, when he, uh, after he's resurrected, he goes to meet with the disciples. And obviously, they're a little surprised to see him. Because the last time they'd seen him, he had died. And the first thing Jesus says is not a word of judgment, but a word of peace. He says, peace to you. And then what he did, and I... Gosh, I wish somebody had written this down. 
but it says he opened their mind to unpack the scriptures, that this whole story was always pointing to him, that the character of God is seen most clearly in the promises that are realized through Jesus and that it never changes. And then what he said, he says, it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to his name to all nations. You are witnesses of these things. And then what did he say? He said, and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. You know what the promise is? The promise was the Holy Spirit. That just days later, the Holy Spirit was poured out on him. That as we are children of the promise, one of the ways we endure is just that we are held in faith by the Holy Spirit who speaks to us in love and in patience and reminds us of the things of Christ that we need to remember. And so you and me are held with promise, saved forever by a faith you cannot lose, loved deeply by a king who is trustworthy and powerfully endowed with the Holy Spirit who will never leave you, we press forward in endurance. Let me close this way. Andrew Peterson's a really talented Christian artist, musician. You may have heard of him. Songwriter. His words have encouraged me through the years. And in one of his prayer books, there's a prayer given for those who continue enduring in difficulty and with loss. And I'd like to close by praying it over you now. Let's pray. O triune God, you are the eternal constant. Though all else in our lives change, you remain the same. Your mercies never waver. Your affections do not fluctuate. Your ancient promises endure. Forever fixed and broken, unbroken. Be our rock and our sure foundation in this time of flux and transition. We ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.